to you then. So we're looking at Acts 12 today. Um, You'll remember that Acts is this uh, book that's been written by this guy called Luke, who hung out a lot with uh, Jesus's friends and followers. Uh, He used to be a doctor before he did that and maybe carried on being a doctor. We don't really know. We know that he was a doctor, uh, but he was also obviously a bit of a writer as well. So he wrote the book of Luke that talks about Jesus and his life. And then he went on later to write about the acts of the apostles, the things that Jesus's friends, the early church started doing once Jesus had gone back to heaven. And so we are now at Acts chapter 12. And uh, we're going to start reading verse, chapter 12, verse 1. It says this. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after Passover. So, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly... An angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put your clothes and sandals. I don't know why the angel's talking like that. I kind of like an SAS. I think I just imagine angels being quite sort of amped from SAS. Uh, put your clothes and sandals on. Yes, sir. Uh, and uh, Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Peter followed him out of prison, but he had no idea that the angel was, what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of the street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. So this is our passage today. So it's got a kind of ant from SAS angel coming and rescuing Peter and we'll think a little bit about that. But also I think this passage is really significant for us. And, and I think particularly for me, um, because one of the things it does, it shows us how the church respond or responded to opposition, to attack, to disappointment, to hopelessness and to hardship. And these are things that maybe some of us feel quite familiar with. You know, these are disappointment might be something that feels very familiar to you. Maybe hardship uh, feels familiar to you. And so it's good, isn't it, to know that maybe there's something in the Bible here that will kind of help us go, okay, this is how when they were in a moment of of hardship and disappointment and and challenge, this is how they responded to that moment. Now, I know for some of you, because I know most of you quite well, and I know quite a lot of what's gone on in your life uh, so far, uh, I know that the word hardship perhaps doesn't quite cut it for you. You know, for some of us, it feels like at certain times in our lives, 
that life has come along like a massive, great, big kind of hench boxer and has just kind of thrown this punch and has just smashed us in the face and knocked us flying. You know, it's felt like life has literally smashed you and knocked you on your butt and you are just kind of sitting there in pain just going, what hit me? I don't even know what's going on. Uh, I know for probably most of you, you can say, I can, I can definitely point to times in my life when I felt like that. When I felt like the, the, the kind of big question that I've been asking is like, why? Why? Why has that happened in my life? For, for these guys, for the early church, this without a question was one of those times. Because we just kind of read through it in a moment where it says, Herod... Uh, put James, brother of John, to death. We just read it and then we keep going to the exciting story about the angel rescuing Peter. But that was this huge moment. That was one of those times when somebody who seemed to be more powerful, who seemed to something that seemed to be out of their control, came along and just smacked him one. And, and theologically, in other words, kind of what they believe about God, that must have been really tough for them. You know, imagine that. And some of us, that's not hard to imagine because we've had similar things where we've gone, where is God in that? That's how they must have been thinking, surely. They must have been going, our friend, our friend has got arrested and killed by this evil, corrupt king who's just trying to smash the church up and do everything he can to destroy what God's doing. Why didn't God stop that? Must have been some of the stuff going through their mind, surely. But not this wasn't just theological confusion. This was also just personally painful. This was their friend. This is someone they love, but they've now lost. They're grieving. They're hurting. This is, a, this is just gut-wrenchingly painful, isn't it? And so what I think is really, really important is that uh, when we read these words, we realise what these guys are going through. Because they were going through stuff that maybe we've gone through. Maybe different circumstances. But they were going through a similar sort of pain that maybe we go through. They were going through some of the similar questions and confusion and disappointment that we go through. And so as they go through that, what do they do? Let's look. Because what it says is that even though they had kind of every reason to even though they had every reason to say, oh, hang on a minute, I'm just going to kind of step back for a bit. I'm not sure I can handle this. Even though they had every reason to say, I'm not even sure if God is real, because if he's real, then how would this be? They had all that, just like we have at times. It says, but the church prayed. That's what it says. But the church prayed. The reason the but is there is I think that that um, Luke is recognising that this wasn't an easy thing to do. This wasn't just a simple, oh yeah, this is what we do every day, we, we have a prayer meeting. This was a, okay, we are choosing to pray. We are deciding to pray. We are going, even though we don't want to pray, but the church prayed. See, I imagine they prayed that when, when James got arrested. Uh, I imagine that happened. 
And, and when he got arrested, so Peter hasn't been arrested yet, it's just James, it says in, in Acts 12, that gets arrested first. So he gets arrested. Now James is one of the church leaders, so it would be like Sam getting arrested, right, for being a Christian. And so I imagine we might, we might, can we bother it? There is some good stuff on telly at the moment, but maybe what we'd do is we'd go, tell you what, let's pray. Um, and, and so they get together and they pray because their friend, their leader, he's in, he's in prison, he's been arrested. And I imagine maybe those prayers could have been quite sort of like, yeah, God, you can do it because you've done it before. In fact, they had done it before. This wasn't the first arrest for these early Christians. Uh, Peter and John, if you might remember, because we talked about it a few weeks ago, they'd been arrested, and uh, the, the religious leaders had arrested them after they'd healed uh, the, the, the lame man at the temple, and, and they'd been beaten up by the soldiers, but they'd been set free. But when they got arrested, I'm sure the church kind of prayed then, and then they were set free, and they came back, and they're like, going, oh, come on, guys, let's keep going. And everyone prayed, and it was quite an exciting time. So maybe when James gets arrested, they're like, okay, it's all right, this has happened before. Uh, let's pray again, and God's going to set them free, and it's going to be great. And so that's what they do. They pray, and then maybe it was, Lord, you did before with Peter and John. Now it's James's turn to be set free, and he's going to do something really cool and exciting. Uh, and, and so maybe that was their prayer. Who knows? We don't know, do we? What we do know is he wasn't set free. What we know is that he got killed. And now, Peter's been arrested too. So your prayer then is maybe slightly different. You know, a couple of days later, which it would have been, because it says Herod found out when they killed James and all the Jewish uh, people who were a bit anti the church were all going, well, you killed one of the leaders, nice one, Herod. Herod's like, oh, I'm liking this. I'm getting, this is popularity time. I might get some votes here. And they didn't vote for Peter, but you know what I mean. And so, so he's like, right, let's get Peter then. Let's keep this, this going. So he rests Peter. But now, this prayer meeting, the prayer meeting that we're reading about today, must have felt and sounded quite different, I would have thought. Because now there are some massive why questions going on. There's some huge confusion and disappointment and hurt and grief, as we mentioned. In fact, um, the way that Luke describes it is he says this. He says, but the church prayed earnestly to God for him. Talking about Peter. But the church prayed earnestly to God for him. Now, um, does anyone know what... uh, what this is, I know it's a doll of a naked man. That's a little bit weird. Well, he's not totally naked. He's got trunks on, for those of you who are listening uh, to the talk and wondering why has he even got a doll of a naked person. Um, with my job, that's a bit unfortunate. So, um, anyone know what he's called? Stretch Armstrong. Now, the reason he's called Stretch Armstrong, okay, grab our hands, two hands, in fact, why not? It's because Whoa. he can Stretch. <laughs> so, so that's Stretch Armstrong. Now, when Luke says the word earnestly, okay, when he says the word earnestly, he is, remember, a doctor. And so he's using a medical term here, actually. He's using a term which, Sharon, if you just want to grab some hands as well, literally means this. 
This is what earnestly means, okay? So the word that he uses is when we stretch our muscles to their limit. There, there you go. To their limit. Thanks, Sharon. Oh, look. Oh, he's got a little kind of like... Funny. That's what it means, okay? So when Luke says they prayed earnestly, what he's talking about is a stretching prayer. A prayer that just goes to its very limits. That's what it's talking about. Um, and that's why I just want us to spend a couple of minutes thinking about. You see, um, this wasn't an easy prayer. That's what I'm saying. This wasn't an easy prayer. The other day I was reading Psalm 56, uh, and I'll read it to you. I don't expect you to know it off the top of your head. It says this, Psalm 56 says, Take my side, God. I'm getting kicked around, stomped on every day. Not a day goes by, but someone beats me up. Now, the person who wrote this was King David. And David wrote this when he had been captured by the Philistines. Okay, so the Philistines have captured him. He's kind of like in prison. They're kind of uh, treating him like a prisoner. Now, one of the things that we have to remember that this is the David who had defeated the Philistines' champion, Goliath. That's why we know him. When he was a kid, he took down Goliath. Now, David, the giant slayer, is, one of the, is a Philistine prisoner. So, so he's had times in the past where it's like God has kind of given him amazing miracle moments and he takes down a giant. Now, the same people that he defeated in that moment have got him in prison and he's saying, God... I'm getting kicked around, stomped on every day. Not a day goes by when someone beats me up. The psalm before, so that was Psalm 56. Psalm 55 says this, Open your ears, God, to my prayer. Don't pretend you don't hear me knocking. Come close and whisper your answer. I really need you. My sigh, insides are turning inside out. I shake with fear. I shudder from head to foot. I am desperate for a change from the rage and stormy weather. Have you ever felt like that? I am desperate for a change from this rage and stormy weather. Same guy. You see, these were perhaps the kind of prayers that the early church were praying. Maybe they were quoting these psalms to God as they came together. Maybe they were saying, God, this is how we feel right now. They were definitely honest prayers. They were definitely prayers that were saying, God, why have you forsaken me? Type prayers, which is another psalm. I think if we are to be the kind of people like them who pray earnestly, then we mustn't be shy to ask why. Let me say that again. If we're going to be the kind of Christians, the kind of Jesus followers, who are going to pray earnestly, who are going to pray Armstrong stretching prayers, if we are going to be that, then we mustn't be shy to ask why. Why is okay. It's okay to say to God, why? Why is this happening? Why is this going on? You see... Sometimes I think we think it's not scriptural or Christian to ask why. But I would say not only is it scriptural, not only is it from the Bible, but it's also stretching. 
It's stretching for us. And I think God is big enough for these kind of honest prayers. The question is, are we? Are we big enough to actually ask them? Because God is big enough to listen. He is. He's wondering, can we ask? Can we be that honest with ourselves and with him? But I think if we're going to stretch earnestly, then we need to be able to stretch past those why questions. Prayers. They're really important, they're really good. We mustn't avoid them or try and not pray them. But as we do that, I think stretching prayer takes us a little bit further. We go past the why and we start to ask another question. What else? What else is God doing? What else can I see around me, just as Keith is saying in testimony time, what else do I know about that tells me that there is a God and he does exist and that he's doing something, even if I can't see in this thing right here in front of me, and I'm asking a why about that, can I stretch past that why and just say, what else? What else? In Psalm 22, um, Jesus quotes Psalm 22 famously when he's on the cross. He's being smashed to a cross. He's being tortured. And he cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? And it's from this psalm, Psalm 22, that was written hundreds of years before Jesus died. And we've talked about before how amazing this psalm is. In some ways, this is proof that there is God and the Bible isn't just made up by people. Because this psalm describes in detail how Jesus was going to die, the type of death, what would actually happen to his body, what would happen to the people around him, stuff that he couldn't have controlled or manipulated. This psalm, written hundreds of years before, it actually says this is what's going to happen, and it does happen like that. It is incredible. But it starts with, why why have you forsaken me? And that's what Jesus says. But it ends with these words. It says this, the end of the psalm, 22, says, from the four corners of the earth, People are coming to their senses, are running back to God. Long lost families are falling on their faces before him. God has taken charge. From now on, he has the last word. All the power mongers are before him, worshipping. All the poor and powerless too. Our children and their children will get in on this as the worst word is passed along from parent to child. Babies not yet conceived will hear the good news that this is what God says. In other words, what the psalm ends with, even though it starts with, why God, why have you forsaken me? It ends with a what else. What else is God going to do? In other words, when that psalm was written, it was saying, okay, this is going to be extremely difficult, extremely painful, describes the death, but it then says, but through that death, this is what God's going to do. He's going to bring wholeness and healing and life to people. And maybe that's why Jesus screamed out, why have you forsaken me? Partly because that's how he felt. Partly because it was a psalm that was describing what he was going through. But maybe also partly because he was beginning to say, I know where this leads. I know the what else. I know that there is something more that God is doing than what I'm going through right now. Um, I think if we can ask why, and perhaps stretch past that why to a what else, then maybe the ultimate stretch, the final stretch, is to reach towards what if. What if? What if it doesn't have to be like this anymore? What if God could change it? 
Psalm 55, the get me out of me here prayer, the one that uh, David wrote whilst in a Philistine prison, ends with these words. It ends with, simply, and I will trust you. Psalm 56, the being stopped on all day psalm, says, In God I trust, I am not afraid. Earnest prayer happens when we stretch past the why, through the what else, and we begin to say, what if? What if I could trust God? What if I don't have to be afraid? What if it doesn't have to be like this in God? That's what I think earnest prayer is doing. Now, sometimes prayer is about sitting in silence and listening to God and connecting with the Creator because that's the best thing you can do as we saw on that video. Sometimes prayer looks like that. Sometimes it's worship and that's just telling them how amazing it is. Sometimes prayer is that. Sometimes it's chatting with Jesus and just telling him what's on your mind, big and small. Prayer is that too. Sometimes it's asking him stuff, bringing our needs to him. Those that we've got and the needs that we know our friends and family have and those uh, around us. But sometimes it's earnest. Sometimes it's stretching. Sometimes it's saying, even though I've been knocked back, I'm going to somehow try and stretch out to the God that I can't even see or feel like. I think what the 24-7 prayer room is going to help us do is learn how to pray. You see, I think prayer is one, is one of the things that's most natural and normal to us as human beings. But just like Isabella, for example, bless us, Lincoln, looking beautiful there right now. Very soon, as Claire and Scott know, because they've been here before, she is going to start walking. Right? Now, walking is the most natural, normal thing for a human being to do. We're all kind of do it now without even thinking about it, most of us, those of us that are able, that's, that's what we do. But she will have to learn how to do that. Even though it's a natural thing for her, even though it will become a very normal thing to her, she, had to, she will have to learn how to do it. And these guys will be there trying to teach her how to walk, you know, and catching her when she falls down on her head and all that stuff. And way, there we go. All that. We remember it. We might not remember doing it ourselves, but, you know, we've seen that happen. Now, prayer is the same. Prayer is something that is natural to us. I believe it's something that should become really normal to us. But actually, it's something we have to learn as well. It's something that actually we need to kind of say, I don't know how to do this. You know, stumbling along, that's fine. Because it's normal and natural to learn. In fact, Jesus' disciples said to Jesus, teach us how to do it. We haven't got a clue. Teach us how to pray. And that's how then Jesus started to show the disciples, this is what prayer can look like. And that's what we'll do in September. We're going to take Jesus' advice on how to pray. We're going to take that stuff and help us. Because you might be totally new to prayer. And that's cool. You've got to learn. And those of us that have been praying for a bit longer, there's still loads to learn about it. Um, So... That's what we're going to be doing. And I think the fact that we see the church praying in this way, for me, is really encouraging. But this isn't just a story about prayer. It's also a st- that, that releases change, because it does. But it's also a story of choice that leads to change. Now, I'm not going to do another whole talk, don't panic. Um, and what I just want us to end on is thinking about one simple point that, that uh, I kind of picked up as I read this story. I want to talk about SAS Angel, 
don't want to talk about the fact that, uh, you know, Peter, um, you know, knocked on the door and they came and answered and then nobody actually let him in. All that stuff's good. The one thing that I found quite interesting was this little verse, which simply said this. Peter followed him, that's the angel, out of prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. I just found that really interesting. Um, And I guess what it means, I think, for me, is that sometimes something that we kind of believe has to be something that we act on. Because if we just believe it and we don't act, then maybe the change doesn't happen. So for Peter, if he'd just gone, oh, this is a nice vision, cool. But he didn't actually do what, what he was being told to do. He would have stayed in that prison. Does that make sense? Um, so sometimes there can be something spiritual, an idea that we have, like freedom or forgiveness or healing, and we can sing about that idea, and we can listen to talks about that idea, and we can do that with full conviction. But it remains spiritual and never becomes physical reality if we don't live it out. So let me give you some examples as I finish. Okay? Disappointment. You can believe that God is faithful. That's something you can believe in with your head. You can believe that he is a faithful God and that you can trust him. But if you are being disappointed, then that only becomes a reality that you believe that when you dare to do something again, where you have to trust God, even though you've been disappointed before, where you have to go, okay, I'm going to risk something again, even though I've been disappointed before, I'm going to take a risk, I'm going to, that's like Peter having to step out of prison. You can believe in something like healing and believe that God does heal people, but if you never ask for help, if you never ask for prayer, if you never do what Anthony did and actually go, do you want me to pray for you? Then, then you can have that belief. It can be an idea that you've got, but you have to live it out. You have to take a physical action that goes along with what you believe is a spiritual principle. Maybe you believe in forgiveness. But unless you forgive others, even though you don't want to forgive them, because then that means they get away with it. And it means they don't get hurt in the way you want them to get hurt. But unless we forgive, then it doesn't become a reality. We end up bitter, and it ends up hurting us more than it hurts them. That's how Terry Wake put it. Or unless we actually receive forgiveness, and God's told us that we are forgiven, but we still live in this kind of cell of shame and self-hate, and we say, I'm awful. And we don't actually step out and say, do you know what? I'm going to tell somebody what's happened and I'm going to actually listen to them when they tell me you're forgiven. That's not who you are, that's something maybe you did. That's your past, but it's not who you are and it doesn't have to be your future. So we just keep it to ourselves. And then the lies of shame keep on repeating in our ears to say, you're disgusting, you put yourself Christian, you're not a Christian. And sometimes we have to kind of say, say look, I messed up. Not, not because it does anything other than it gives us the opportunity. The Bible says confess your sins to one another 
and you will be forgiven. I think a big part of that, a big reason why we confess to one another, is just so that we don't keep it secret and then we can actually hear the truth rather than the lies we tell ourselves about that. Does that make sense? Most of the people I know believe in forgiveness but haven't told people about some of the mistakes they made are just still telling themselves, yeah, yeah, but that doesn't count because that thing is too bad. And so sometimes confessing is about just having someone else say, no, you're forgiven. You are forgiven. And so I'm not saying go around telling everybody everything you've done wrong. I don't think that's healthy or helpful either. But being able to be honest with somebody is an important part of how we will see something we believe in. So whatever it might be, having just the idea isn't enough. We have to step into it a bit somewhere. Um, we can't simply ascribe, it's an old-fashioned word, but it kind of means subscribe. That's where we get the word subscribe. We can't just ascribe to our beliefs. We actually have to apply them. We've got to put them into action. We've got to do something about what we do. And so as we finish now, okay, what I want you to do is um, I want you to just take a moment and uh, close your eyes, please. 